Good morning, Highland. Good to be with you in your family rooms or living rooms. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Philippians 4, 4 to 9. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at your inspired and errant word, and you tell us to rejoice always, again I say rejoice, and you tell us that you give us that peace that surpasses all understanding to guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Father, we want that in our lives. We want that kind of joy. We want that kind of peace. We want that kind of confidence. Father, fill us with your word. Fill us with your spirit. And allow us to live out your truths for your great glory and our betterment. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Some of you know the name Richard Stearns. If you know that name, you know that he was president of World Vision until 2019. Richard says that shortly after the 7.0 Richter scale earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, he got to visit a local church. He said it was unbelievable. The church wasn't a building. It was a few tarps, mostly with holes, just a little bit of coverage from the hot sun. And he said the people worship with great joy, with great exuberance. He said right before him were six people with amputees, six amputees from age 6 to 60, and they were praising God. There was a 32-year-old woman who had lost her job, lost most of her family, had lost her right arm and her left leg. Her name was Demosi. She had been pinned under some heavy concrete and then when rescued, lost two limbs. He saw her leading the choir. He saw her leading the worship. She was standing on a prosthesis on one leg and, and lifting her one arm, leading in worship. He had to talk to her. He said, man, there was such joy in your life. She said, why not? God has brought me back from the dead like Lazarus. He brought me back for two purposes, to praise and worship him and for the joy of raising my two young daughters. This woman has lost so much. She lost her job. She lost her home. She lost a lot of family. She lost two limbs. And she is praising joy. Or praising God with joy. She understands that biblical joy is supra-circumstantial. It's above our circumstances. It's a joy because of Jesus. It's a joy because of her future and a hope. It's her joy because of confidence in God. I, like some of you, have had the opportunity to visit Port-au-Prince since that 2010 earthquake. If you've been to Port-au-Prince in the last few years, you know it looks like a war zone. There's crumbled concrete everywhere. There's rebar poking up out of the concrete. It's rusted. There's all sorts of rusted metal, and your heart just sinks as you see these young children playing among the rusted rebar without shoes or with inadequate shoes, and, and you fear they're going to be impaled. And yet, there is joy. I remember one Sunday I was there, I was invited to preach in a church, and it wasn't much of a church, not by our standards. A few tarps and a little bit of a building, not much. 
I was going to be the guest of honor preacher. There were four or 500 people in the audience. It was three and a half hours into the service. It was well over 100 degrees. Four or 500 people packed together. No bathrooms, none, no bathrooms. Three and a half hours. And they asked me to take the pulpit and they offered me up to a couple hours to preach. They wanted more Jesus. They wanted more Jesus. They had confidence in Jesus, a love for Jesus, a desire for more Jesus. Pastor Dave Mahler knows about this. You may or may not be aware that for a number of years now, Highland has paid for a a theological education for about a dozen pastors at a time, moving towards two dozen and a curriculum of one or two years. And Pastor Dave is the unofficial dean of this seminary. I think Brian and Linda Gotchuk and, and many of the teams they've led throughout the island of Hispaniola, they know, they've seen Dominicans, they've seen Haitians, they've seen Haitians in the Batays, modern day slavery where you go to their worship services, and there's joy. Joy that is super circumstantial. There's nothing good going on. Their kids are not being educated. They're living in just squalor. They're modern-day slaves, and yet they have a hope in God, a love for God, a joy for God, an expectation of a future and a hope for God, and there is joy. Several of our pastors who throughout the Dominican and also Haiti have done some theological extension education. We've seen it. We've seen this joy. This is what Paul talks about when he says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you pick up your Bibles, I want to look at verses 4 to 9 of chapter 4. Listen to God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, sisters, Christ followers, finally, Christ followers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There's a lot here, isn't it? I looked at this text and I thought, what am I thinking? I'm going to do this in one sermon. I need at least four. So I'm really going to focus primarily on the first verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And this joy, carita, is is super circumstantial. It's not based on what's going on around us. It's based on who God is, a confidence in God, a growing love for God. It's based on a belief in Romans 8, 28. And we know, and we know that all things work together for good 
for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And in the midst of a COVID-19 world, in the midst of not getting my preferences, in the midst of things not going the way I, Jeff, want them to go, in the midst of of all of us having difficulty, I don't know anyone who's getting their way in the vast majority of things. It's just not going that way, right? But in the midst of that, we can have joy. We can have biblical joy. There's two conditions, and we know. We're not thinking, we're not hoping, we're not guessing. We're confident. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. Think about that. That's the first great commandment of Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven and following, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the first and great commandment. And if I can get rid of the idolatry in my life, those people, those things, those desires, those aspects that I put above God, and I love God preeminently, he promises that he will work all things together for good. You got to love God, and you got to walk according to his purpose. We've got to be confessed up, repented up, turned from our sins. We got to be following the path that God has for us, and if we love God preeminently, and we're following God's path as our priority, God says he will work all things together for good. What is the good? It's kingdom good. It's kingdom advancement and it's personal reward from the Lord, either temporally or eternally or both. We have this confidence. It is supra circumstantial. Loving God, walking according to his purpose, God will work these things for good. Kingdom good. And that leads to verse 7. That leads to a peace that surpasses all understanding to guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. That's biblical joy. When I think of biblical joy, I think of a man named Horatio. He was born in the 1820s. He was a very successful lawyer. He had a law practice that continued to grow, and he eventually made a fair amount of money, but His contemporaries tell us that his priorities were clear. God first, his wife Anna second, their five children third, and then other things fourth and fifth. That was his priority. He had his head on straight. He was a man who loved God. And then the Chicago fire happened. In the Chicago fire, the great fire, it burned a large portion of Chicago, 3.3 square miles, 300 people died, 100,000 were left homeless. Horatio, just a few months earlier, had invested a lot of money, almost his entire account in property along Lake Michigan. That's the portion that burned. He lost it all. And yet there was joy. Because joy is supra-circumstantial. And then there was a heartbreak. Their only boy, their son, died. Some of you know what that kind of pain is like. And in the midst of real grief and real sorrow, real tears, 
clinging to one another, there was still joy. There was a confidence that God works all things together for good because they loved God and they were called according to his purpose. A few years later, they had saved up enough money and it was time for a vacation. They had this friendship with D.L. Moody who founded the Moody Church and his sidekick, Ira Sanka, and they were leading a crusade in Europe, and, and Horatio said to his wife, Anna, let's take the kids over to Europe. We'll, we'll take part in the crusade, help to spread the gospel, and we'll allow our kids to see some European sites. Due to work, he sent his wife and, and four children over first. Uh, they boarded the, uh, the SS Ville the Hoover, in a maritime accident somewhere across the ocean, they collided with another ship, and, and their ship sank in 12 minutes. And when his wife reached Europe, she sent back a telegraph with two words, saved alone. And immediately Horatio got on a ship to join his wife and somewhere partway across the ocean, maybe near where they lost their four girls, he began to pen this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I can't imagine the grief and the loss of five children now going to eternity, but he believed that they knew Christ. And in the midst of grief, unspeakable pain, they held on to the truth that their children knew Jesus and were in heaven, that they would be reunited. They held on to the joy of Jesus, that joy that is supra-circumstantial. They held on to it and looked for a better day, a better hour, and they loved God. They loved God. Happiness is different than joy. Happiness is the Greek word euphrano, from which we derive the word euphoria. I want you to have happiness. I hope you want me to have happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is event-driven. Happiness is based on things on earth. We want happiness. Nothing wrong with it. It's a biblical word. But it's not joy. Joy is supra-cultural. It's supra-circumstantial. Joy is a confidence that God is working all things together for good. When we love him preeminently, when we are walking in his footsteps, called according to his purpose, that God will do good for his kingdom, for us, temporally and or eternally. The second stanza that he wrote is this. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. What should control my mind? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and had shed his own blood for my soul. What should control me? That I am the object of God's rapt attention, and that I have this blessed assurance that Christ shed his blood for 
my soul. And that's what we cling on to in difficult times. That's what we cling on to when things aren't going the way we want. That's what we cling on to in a world that sometimes seems quite out of control, yet God is in control. That's what we cling on to in a COVID-19 world. That's what we cling on to when we come to the elections every November. This one a big one every four years. And as I look at Scripture, I see several things. First, I'm a citizen, and so I believe it's my civic duty to vote. Second, I think it is very permissible to encourage others to share biblical values. But ultimately, my confidence isn't in an election. I know from Scripture that every election, God has one of several purposes. He'll bless a nation. He'll discipline a nation. Or he'll do something in between. And though, of course, I want the happiness of the people I want elected to be elected, even if I don't get that happiness, I can still have joy because that's super circumstantial. And I can know that in a world that is less in control now than a number of years ago, I have confidence that this is not it for me. That I have a God who is in control. Such confidence in God and biblical joy caused Horatio to pen this final stanza. And Lord, haste the day. Bring it quick. When the faith shall be sight, I'm going to see it all. And the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And we ask, is that realistic? Well, I think it's all about the book of Philippians. Really how we started the book is really how we're going to end it, right? You remember the setting of the book. It was written in AD 61. It's written at the tail end of four years, three months of living a very difficult life. In Acts 23 to 26, we discover that Paul is in a Judean prison for two years. He's in a prison and trumped up charges but nobody's coming to his rescue. It doesn't seem his case will ever make the docket. And we remember in those days, prisons were short-term environments, and you had to pay to be in prison. And they don't feed you. They don't give you water. Friends need to every day bring you food or water, or you perish. And you got to pay to be in that prison. So somebody's paying every day on behalf of Paul, his trial doesn't come, so finally, as a Roman citizen, he appeals to the Caesar of Rome. That's generally not a great idea. Generally, Caesars do not necessarily take the side of a prisoner. And from AD 54 to 68, the, the Caesar is Nero. Nero doesn't value life. He didn't even value his own. He committed suicide in AD 68. This is the man who will one day dip Christians in tar, light them as human candles or torches. This is the man that almost certainly lit Rome on fire, burned down 10 of the 14 sectors, and then blamed it on the Christ followers so that a pogrom against Christians spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. He'll steal land that has burned to the ground 
to begin to build the Colosseum that will be finished by Vespasian and Titus. That Colosseum will be built by 70,000 Jews that are taken out of Israel as slaves. He'll start the incredible pogrom from AD 64 to 70 in Israel that'll murder more than a million Jewish men. He'll start the pogrom that will lead to the destruction of the last temple on the Temple Mountain, A.D. 70, and the burning down of Jerusalem. This is the man, this is Nero, this is to whom Paul appeals. So after two years in a Judean prison, he gets on an Alexandrian grain ship. You remember, it's not a V-Hall <coughs> it's flat bottom. It carries grain, efficient for lots of uh, grain, but not good for the Mediterranean Sea. And so most Alexandrian grain ships don't exist. They're at the bottom of the Mediterranean. And he gets on this ship, and you remember that they head off, and during a storm, they're overturned and they're shipwrecked. And all 276 people we're now in Acts 27 and 28. They're all spared. They all live. And you remember they drag their bodies up onto the beach. They're, they're wet to the bone. They're cold, so they make a fire. And Acts 28, 4 says a therion. It's the Greek word for a viper. It sinks its fangs into Paul's hand. And everyone assumes he will die, but God spares his life. He's on the island as a prisoner for several months until spring comes. Then he boards a ship and he goes to Rome. And then he endures two more years of imprisonment at the hands of the Praetorian Guard. And then he'll face Nero. We know he'll be released, but not long after, in AD 66, he'll be imprisoned again in Rome and then martyred for his faith. It's been four years and, and three months sheltering in place. And yet Paul will write, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He'll say in verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. He'll say in verse 7, let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And we've got to ask ourselves, how does he say this? In the midst of four years, three months, sheltering in place, being shipwrecked, bitten by a viper, imprisoned for all of four years, three months, facing Nero, how does he say all of this? How does he say rejoice? And I think it's because he understands that joy is Super circumstantial. It's what we get with our confidence in the Lord. And so I want to leave us with four thoughts. The first, they're all going to sound like platitudes. I think they're real. I think this isn't formulaic. And this isn't really slick and, and cool. It's just four things that lead to real joy. The first is I've got to keep my eyes on the Lord, not on my circumstances. I've got to stop being driven by the news, being driven by things that don't go my way. And I've got to remember Romans 8.28, that if I love God with all my heart, soul, and might, 
and if I'm walking according to the purposes he has for me, that God will work all things together for good, that a better day is coming, that God will bring good into my life, if not temporally, eternally, and I have confidence in the Lord. The second way to get joy, I think, is to have a vibrant prayer life and a vibrant worship life. Let me read to us out of Psalm 43, verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. How does he get the exceeding joy? He goes to the altar and he plays the lyre. Do you know much about Psalm 42 and 43? At one time, they were one psalm, but an editor eventually divided them into two psalms. They're both about the same event. We're not certain, but it's somebody who has an official position in Jerusalem, and they're now leaving Jerusalem. They're fleeing for their life. Personally, I think it's about David. I think David is king. His throne has been usurped by his son Absalom. Not only has Absalom taken his throne, his crown, his family, but now he's trying to take his life. It's bad enough to run for your life, but to run from your life, from your own son, your own blood, your own flesh. You can imagine the pain, and yet he can rejoice. How? By going to the altar in prayer, by playing the lyre in worship. And I know for me that if I discipline, and it is a discipline, If I discipline my life to pray to God and to be focused on God, not just Jeff's supplications, but Kat's, my confession, my adoration, my thanksgiving, and then my supplication, if I focus on God in prayer, it changes my entire view. And if I take time to worship God, to sing praises to God, it changes my entire views. The psalmist says that he goes to the altar and he plays the lyre and he has exceeding joy. Third, I think joy is remembering that this is not our home, that we are strangers and aliens, as Peter says. Isaiah 61, 10, A to C says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. How? My soul shall exult in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Why do I exult in God? Because I know, having accepted Christ, his death as a payment of my sin, his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave, as I put my confidence in Jesus, I know that I have a future and a hope. This is not my home. I'm a stranger and alien. And if I keep my eyes on eternity, that doesn't mean I'm of no earthly good. That doesn't mean I don't try and find happiness on earth, but I keep my focus on eternity and I don't allow the things of earth to drive me to despair because this is not it. I've got something better. I've got confidence in Jesus. And so I think about my salvation. So I remember... I've got to love God, walk according to his purpose, and he'll work all things together for good. I remember to pray and to worship God, which changes my focus. 
I remember that my salvation gives me hope and encouragement and a future. And finally, I want to remind myself that a joy-filled Christian is not driven by circumstances. I'm driven by super circumstances. I'm driven by Jesus. And that means in spite of my circumstances, I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to be mean-spirited. I don't demand my way. I don't have to have all of my opinions. I don't have to be opinionated over everything. It doesn't mean I don't have a vote. It doesn't mean I don't have a voice. It doesn't mean I can't share what I think is right and what is wrong in the preferred future. Of course I can. But I'm not going to be controlled by my circumstances. I'm going to be controlled by Jesus. I'm not an ambassador for politics. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm not an ambassador for my preferences. I'm an ambassador for Jesus. And I think that's why Horatio Spofford could say it is well. It is well with my soul. Father God, may this be true of us. Of course, we ask for happiness. We rightly desire it, and we ask that you would grant it. We ask, Father, that there would be unity in our community and unity in our country and unity in our world, that you might bring about a far preferred future from where we are today. We pray that our nation and ourselves would keep our eyes on you, would turn back to you, be driven by you and our confidence in you and our future and our hope. Father, give us exceeding joy as we love you preeminently and we walk according to your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.